The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. Uh, Today we're talking about COPD. COPD is the third leading cause of death worldwide, affecting over 15 million Americans. This disease, which can literally leave you breathless, has increased at an alarming rate. Dawn Fielding is sharing her program to help those suffering reclaim their lives. Dawn is a licensed respiratory, respiratory therapist, certified COPD educator, certified asthma educator, patient advocate, and pulmonary rehab clinical specialist. Her book, The COPD Solution, lays out a 10-step program for living and breathing better. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, I think this is going to be a great topic. You know, I didn't realize that until I read your book that COPD was actually as prevalent as it is being the third leading cause of death. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of people that suffer from it. And the strange thing is you can almost double the numbers, not quite, but just about double those numbers with people that are undiagnosed right now as well. So there's a large population walking around suffering from the symptoms in the early stages that don't even recognize that they have this yet. That's that's pretty scary, actually. Yeah. Um, How did you get involved in treating COPD? Um, So it, it... I need to go back to school when I was um, in college and taking my respiratory classes. I had my first rotation in a pulmonary rehab clinic during one of my clinical settings, and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with helping the patients in their real life on a day-to-day basis. So I finished out school. I did home care for a little while, and all the while I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to work with these patients in this setting. So I decided to open up... uh, a set of rehab clinics. So we did pulmonary rehab um, and established a really good program, and that's where this this program was created and developed in working with those patients on a daily basis. So I just so, fell in love with seeing the reward, you know, the changes that it made to them and, and having them have so many pieces of their life back. Well, you know, um, going through your book, I, I can see why you would see that rewarding with some of the stories. Um, can you tell us what COPD is? Yeah, so COPD is a combination of any two of the following three diseases. We have emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and asthma. So COPD is kind of an umbrella term for any combination of those three diseases. So the symptoms there might be a little different person to person because the combination of diseases may be different. 
someone with emphysema isn't going to have as much mucus or as much of a cough or their cough will be more dry than someone with maybe an asthma component or a chronic bronchitis component. So that's kind of what it means and that's kind of what it involves, but it's interesting that the symptomology can be a little bit different patient to patient. Okay. So what causes COPD? COPD is caused by various factors. Um, I think the major contributing factor is cigarette smoking. However, I have a lot of people that will come to me and say, I have this and I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, not realizing that other components such as air pollution, um, job factors, you know, if they work around gases or if they work in a mine or different things like that that can damage the lungs when they, bring, when they breathe over a period of that many years can also be a component to it. There's also a genetic factor that can play part in it also um, called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Um, it's a systemic deficiency, but it can cause emphysema and COPD even in young children. You know, that's pretty scary, especially when you're saying 15 million Americans are affected, but we can double that. So 30 million Americans um, are affected. And I, you know, when you're talking about it could be our, our pollution, which is increasing. And mm-hmm. even the chemicals in our homes are increasing. I, I think the numbers, if we don't change things, may go up even faster. I agree. So when someone is diagnosed <clears throat> with COPD, what's the prognosis? So the way we look at that is um, we look at it in stages. So we'll break the, the disease down in stages based upon what it's, it's a measurement called the FEV1. That's the forced expiratory volume in the first, it's broken into segments, the first segment of that measurement. And what that measures is expiratory flow or expiratory volume. So you've got, um, we'll, we'll establish this during a pulmonary function test, and it measures the amount of restriction that the patient has um, when they exhale forcefully. And so that will give, give us kind of a base on how severe the disease is or what stage the disease is in. Um, when we look at that, we can look at like the early stages and generally say that will probably take a few years off of, a, off of a normal lifespan. Um, now that can be, there can be interventions that take place that can extend life or if the person remains, you know, relatively inactive and they don't do some of these things, they're not very proactive in their care, then it could accelerate it also. So um, in the first stages, like the early stages of the disease, we can generalize it and say it will take a few years off. Once you get to the advanced stages, um, especially if they're still smoking, you can say it will probably take four to six or greater years off of the off of a normal lifespan. Okay, and and so I mean we're saying that they're taking a few years off their life, but um, what is their quality of life? What are the symptoms? The quality of life depends again upon the patient. So let's look at um, someone who comes in. Um, the first symptoms that they'll have, and this is oftentimes the uh, patients I was talking about that don't know that they're diagnosed yet, they may experience a shortness of breath. Um, they may experience difficulty doing activities where, you know, a couple years ago or even one year ago, they didn't experience that same difficulty. So 
you'll have a shortness of breath, you may experience some coughing, things like that start to show up along the symptom line, and then that's where it starts to affect the quality of life. So what we try to do is intervene in that so that we can help with that. Um, We want their quality of life, of course, to be optimal and as good as possible, so we try to teach them things that will help with that. Um, If you don't intervene and you just let it take its course, the patient will find themselves generally starting to feel more fatigued, which means they rest more, which means their tolerance goes down, so they get more fatigued, and then they rest more, and their tolerance goes down even more, and you kind of get in this little downward spiral to where the quality of life can be something that really suffers. Um, But if we can intervene, we can restore a lot of the activities and the things that they like to do so that the quality of life isn't as drastic of a change as it initially would have been. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, So when somebody is diagnosed, what medications does their doctor prescribe? What does that usually look like? What we'll start with um, is usually, and this again goes back to that same pulmonary function test and those measurements that we talked about, depending on what their FEV1 is or what percentage that it puts them into, what bracket they fall into, will have some influence on what medications they have. So we usually will start with a short-acting or a, we call it, you'll hear the term rescue breather sometimes with patients that have breathing problems. It's a bronchodilator. It works really rapidly to help with those times where their chest feels tight or they feel short of breath. From there, we'll advance to a daily maintenance medication, which includes a long-acting bronchodilator and sometimes a steroid, a corticosteroid that they'll inhale also. Um, And from there, you can add additional medications if there's like a mucus problem, if we've got to control the mucus, or even add oxygen, which is also a medication, um, if they if they need that as well. Okay. And do they get, um, you know, a lot of results and the breathlessness and the energy from doing the medications? Medications are great, and these medications work really well. The main thing that we want to focus on with the medications is making sure that the patient knows how to take them correctly. Um, I had a patient come in one day, this was the second time I had worked with this particular patient, and um, for those of you who may not be familiar with using an inhaler, it's a medication that you'll um, actuate or, or squirt, and then you breathe it in. You'll take a nice deep breath to get it settled into your lungs. Well, this patient had an inhaler, uh, but nobody had ever taught her how to use it. So she pulled a spoon out of her pocket, and she sprayed the inhaler on the spoon, and then she licked the spoon. So while the medication itself is very effective, we want to make sure that the patient understands how to take that to make the most out of it. So immediately with that patient, we spent the rest of her portion of her visit learning how to take the medication correctly, sinking her breath with actuating the uh, the device and getting the medication delivered down to her lungs so that she could get the relief that she needed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they do work really well. Yeah, well, that, that's encouraging. Um, what's the six-minute walk test you talk about in your book? A six-minute walk test is a test that's performed um, usually at a doctor's office or in a rehab clinic, and what we do with that is we'll set the timer for six minutes, and we just walk 
will check the, the patient's oxygen level and their heart rate periodically throughout the test. If they need to sit down and rest, then they do so, but we keep the timer going for that whole six-minute duration. And then what we do is calculate the distance that they were able to walk in that six minutes. And it's a good, th- it's a good way to measure their starting point and then also their progression through the program as they improve. You can see a, a difference in their distance walked between their initial visit or the first time they do it and, you know, periodically throughout till the end. So what is that, um, that telling you? It tells us endurance, um, strength. It gives us a good indication of what they're, they're capable of as far as um, what their oxygen levels are. How much does their oxygen drop or how much do we need to turn up their leader flow if they're on oxygen while they're walking in order to meet the demand? It gives us a good indication of what their um, oxygen consumption is on a cellular level so that we know how to address them and give us a good starting point for strength training and endurance. Okay. And then, um, so with your entire program, taking all this that we just talked about into consideration, how did you come up with this 10-step program? Was it just through observations or um, how did that start? Well, I had, I had a very good base knowledge of what these patients needed in pulmonary rehab. Um, as far as the exercise goes, um, like I said, the six-minute walk test is a good place to start. And then in working with them and, and addressing their needs and being very familiar, familiar with the disease process and learning more as I went, I was looking for some material that I could, could give them that they could put their hands on to take home. Because you give them so much information during class and during their exercise sessions and, and everything, but it's so much to remember. I wanted them to have something in their hand to take home and refer to and to be able to take notes in. So I started writing this thinking that I would come up with like a 35-page manual that we could just take notes in. They could take it home and refer back to it. And it didn't take me very long to realize that there was way too much information and it was going to be much larger but everything in here needed to be addressed and, and the patients needed exposure to all of it. So it was a combination of the base knowledge that I had when I started and learning through working with these patients and kind of writing it as I went, um, the topics that would come up and the issues that needed to be addressed with them. So can you explain how your program works? Yeah, I would love to. Um, it's kind of funny because when you first start the program, although it's laid out in the book, um, everyone could have a little bit of a different starting point or one chapter that needs more focus than another. Um, in the book, we start with acceptance. Um, it is part of a grieving process when you're diagnosed with a chronic disease. You have to come to accept it before you can really deal with it effectively and move on and make the changes that you need to make, regardless of what the diagnosis is. So I like to start there, um, and then we kind of move on to one of the first things that we hit is breathing techniques. We want to make sure that they understand there's ways that they can do their breathing that will help them recover faster and help them do better than other ways. So that's one of the first topics that we hit. 
The next one is the medications, just for situations like I explained a minute ago with that one patient that came in with the spoon and her inhaler. want to make sure that they're able to hit those medications and use those directly the way they're supposed to be used and intended so that they can get the best effect out of it. And then one of the next ones that we always hit is nutrition because we want to start that as soon on as possible so that we can start making changes that way as well. Okay, well, we're, um, we're talking today with John Fielding, who is a COPD um, specialist. She's a respiratory therapist, certified COPD educator, and certified asthma educator. She is the author of the COPD Solution, which lays out a 10-step program for living and breathing better. Um, we're going to be back shortly. If you have any questions about today's show, feel free to call in or email us at anantacalgary at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd love to hear your comments. We'll be back shortly after this break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're talking about COPD, which is the third leading cause of death worldwide. We're speaking with Don Fielding, who is a licensed respiratory therapist, certified COPD educator, and certified asthma educator and patient advocate. She is the author of The COPD Solution, which lays out a 10-step program for living and breathing better. So, Don, um, before the break, you talked about um, the first step is acceptance of the disease. How do you help somebody do that? You know, acceptance is a tricky thing, and everybody kind of has their own timeline that they work on with that. Um, there's a few things that you have to go through in order to get to that point. Um, some things that we do to help are um, I have social workers available to talk to the patients if they need that. Um, in my rehab, that's what I do. As far as with the book and patients that are not physically in a rehab but are maybe at home doing this on their own, I think it's important to have somebody to talk to. One of the greatest benefits is finding like a support group or a, another group of people who can relate to some of the emotions that you're feeling. They don't need to have the exact same set of circumstances as you to understand and be empathetic to how the patient is feeling. So I think it's important for them to have someone to talk to. And we spend a lot of time talking about those emotions and, um, you know, coming to grips with the fact that, yes, you are sick, but that's okay. There are still wonderful things that you can do, and you are still fully capable of living a, a life with a great quality of life. You know, uh, you know, yeah, I think I think this is true with with any disease. Um, you know, I, I suffered with chronic Lyme for a long time, which is currently in remission. And I know for me, it was really important to um, allow myself room to be unwell when I needed to instead of pushing myself so that my body could heal. And, and I think that, you know, it varies um, with each you know, situation that you have, but without that acceptance, I probably would have just run myself into the ground and pushed myself beyond what I could do. And I see this with my patients where if they're just trying to bide their time through treatment or they're um, wanting to go backwards or skip the next year while they get better, they're not going to get better. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to form um, a mind-body connection where you are listening and paying attention our bodies are really good at telling us what they need if we can just be better at listening. And take those breaks when you need to pace yourself and plan things out so that you can um, keep up with what you would like to do, but you're budgeting your energy just like you budget your money. And I think all of that comes into play with acceptance because once you accept it, you can all of a sudden, the doors seem to, the floodgates open and, and these opportunities are there and you take advantage of those and you start to plan things out and you do pace yourself and you recognize that maybe I like to do my gardening. Maybe it's too hard for me to bend over to do my gardening. But if I were to just raise my gardens up so that I could sit on a chair next to my garden, I could still do what I really like to do. Just making a few little lifestyle modifications like that enable you to still have a real great quality of life and do the things that you enjoy. But in order to make those modifications, you have to accept the fact that they need to be made first. And I think that's really um, valid um, because how would you want to spend the time to raise your garden if you don't accept that you need to do that yeah. for yourself? Yeah. Um, so what does oxygen do for COPD? So with COPD patients, 
um, like I mentioned in the beginning, there's a few different uh, disease processes that are taking place. Oxygen helps with feeding the cells. So we'll have a patient that needs supplemental oxygen when their saturations generally drop down into the 80s. Someone with COBD can walk around in the high 80s all the time and their body adjusts to that being normal. So what, you know, where they may set a normal oxygen level of 87, that would be considered low for someone who has healthy lungs. Their body will make those adjustments, but they still can use a supplemental oxygen to help with endurance and especially when they exert themselves. Um, it, it, just feeds, it just feeds the cells of the body and the muscles the heart, which is also a muscle, um, the nutrition that they need in order to perform well. Okay. And how can you help somebody breathe easier? One of the first things that we do is to practice breathing retraining. Um, With my patients, I always tell them, smell the cake and blow out the candles. So when they start to get short of breath when we're working, your natural response is to just open your mouth, you know, open the biggest hole and get as much air as you can. But if you can focus on doing this other type of breathing, then you're going to actually recover much faster. Um, The problem with opening the mouth and taking the big, quick breaths is that the little airways down by our air sacs collapse based on the pressure that, that we are giving them. So when we exhale really quickly, the pressure is going to change really quickly down in those little airways and they collapse sooner, which means all of the air behind that collapse point back into the air sac is stuck there. When we breathe out, like we're blowing out candles, take a nice deep breath in through your nose and blow out through your mouth, you're creating a back pressure that goes all the way to the air sac. So it allows more of that, I call it stale air because it's unoxygenated, It allows more of that stale air to exit so that the next deep breath you take through your nose, you have more space in those air sacs for the fresh air to come in to feed your body the oxygen that it needs. So that's one of the first things that we practice. And oftentimes it takes the patient a real great amount of focus and a lot of practice time to master this so that when they're, let's say they're at the grocery store or they're, you know, shopping somewhere else or whatever, and they get fatigued, if they can just stand there for even just for one minute or lean up against a wall or find a chair to sit on when they're shopping and they just do this breathing technique for a minute, it helps their body get what it needs and it helps them recover so that they can go back to their activity faster. Another one that we practice is called diaphragmatic breathing. I just call it belly breathing because it's easier to say. Um, And those are strengthening exercises that we use to help strengthen the accessory muscles. Um, Those are used a lot of times with patients that suffer from chronic lung disease because the normal breathing muscle, the diaphragm, when we get that extra air that I was talking about trapped in the air sacs, it pushes the diaphragm down so that it doesn't have as much area to move, which means the breath that we take in, even though it's as deep of a breath as we can do, there's less volume to it. So when we strengthen these accessory muscles, they help pull the rib cage out so that we can get a greater volume of air in. And it's important to have those strengthened too because you've got to remember with all of this breathing, you're also burning calories. So you want to make that system as efficient as possible so that you don't go into 
nutrition deficiencies because of the extra calories that you're burning to breathe. It's not uncommon for a COPD patient to burn in excess of 1,000 calories a day just breathing. So, and That's pretty significant, 1,000 calories. It is. Calories. It adds yeah. up really quickly, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, and I can see where um, just teaching this to anybody could be important. I've taught, you know, breathing to people, um, you know, whether they had COPD or something else going on, just so that they can get more energy and feel more relaxed and, you know, help with anxiety. And a lot of people, you know, they're, they've forgotten how to do this. We get kind of caught up somehow in some sort of cycle. So I think for anybody listening, whether they have COPD or not, taking you know this advice and seeing if it helps their day might be really important. Mm-hmm. That's uh, why we integrate the yoga into things. Um, it helps with the mind-body connection. It helps with um, the breathing retraining and focusing on the breath um, in and out and in and out, you know, along with strengthening. It's one of, the, one of the things that we use as a tool to not only strengthen the body, but to also strengthen the mind and focus on the breathing. So if somebody, you know, is having difficulty, is yoga hard to do at first? It can be, but it's not if you modify it. Um, you do what you can with yoga. In the book, you'll notice that we have full floor positions and standing positions in there, but also modified positions to be done from the chair. And that's where most people will start. But it's not uncommon for them to advance to the point where they are on the floor doing the full movement or they are standing up and their balance is improved and, and they're able to do more because it is so strengthening. Um, so how um, can you help somebody conserve their energy when their oxygen is low? Okay, so this is an interesting discussion. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought this up. Some of the things that we will do, we'll actually focus like on stages of the person's day. We'll start with when you get up in the morning. Um, and we just kind of go through every action of the day. So let's say they start in the morning and they get up. Many patients need just a couple minutes to take a few good breaths before they start the day. So they get up, we focus on showering. Many people forget that it's okay to wear your oxygen in the shower. Please do that. It's safer. Um, And you're doing a lot of movements in there, um, you know, with your arms above your head to wash your hair, things like that that can be really difficult when you have lung disease. Um, So wear your oxygen in the shower. And then we focus on things like um, drying off. You get out of the shower, you've got to dry off. By yourself, or see if you can get your hands on a nice, big, heavy robe, because when you wrap yourself around, that robe around yourself, you're, it's going to help dry you off so that you don't have to go through the manual labor of drying your arms and your legs. It will, it will help absorb some of that water and conserve a little bit of energy that way. Get some nice, big slippers that you can slip your feet in that will also absorb water. Um, that saves a little bit of energy. And then you go about your day, whether it's in the bathroom or the kitchen or whatever, just kind of look at things and evaluate. What can I put at my countertop or my arm level so that there's less reaching and less stooping because all of that absorbs energy. And if you can put everything at your arm level, it helps you function better. I had one patient in particular. I went to her home and helped her do this. Um, 
she was on oxygen, so first thing we did was we got rid of her gas stove. She got a new electric stove in so she could continue to cook. Uh, We moved her microwave down from a shelf above the stove to her countertop. Um, There was a few other things that she used frequently, like a toaster, you know, toaster oven, things like that, that we put just within arm's reach. And then the most common utensils that she used in the kitchen, the plates and the glasses as well, we put everything as close to that area as we could so that when she was in the area, there was less um, reaching and stooping. And the same thing with the bathroom. Same thing with the bedroom. You can kind of organize things so that it's within arm's reach or it's easy to get to. And I know those don't sound like real significant changes, but the energy that they save adds up over the course of the day. So that if you've got a grandchild's um, soccer game that you want to go to or there's an, another event that you want to go with a friend to you know, on the weekend or whatever, you kind of have to budget yourself so that you're saving that energy for those expenditures, those bigger expenditures. You would hate to wear yourself out just cooking dinner one night when you don't need to. Does that I make sense? That, yeah, I think that's really good advice. You know, I, I've been um, really ill and, um, you know, I wish I'd thought of some of those things for myself. I think it would it, have been really yeah. helpful, yeah, to it conserve really the does. energy. And, and it's just little changes. It's not anything that anybody outside of the house would even recognize you've done. Nobody outside of your own personal, you know, little self because you're really the only one that's in the bathroom getting ready and, and those changes in the kitchen, nobody's going to notice. But it makes a big difference on your energy expenditure. And do things too, like if you're cooking, let's say you want to make a lasagna for dinner, make enough that you can freeze half of it. It's not that much more work to make just a little extra, but then it keeps you from one of those days where maybe your energy is lower, you'll still have a nutritious meal that you can get to easily and quickly and have prepared for yourself so that you're not, again, sacrificing a nutritional need because your energy isn't high enough to meet that need right there at that time. Well, I think that's an important point as well, because when you're unwell, the the diet is important, but you don't have the energy to follow through with it. Right. And then you mm-hmm. end up in the cycle because you're not eating properly, but then you continue to, to get sick because you, you know, and you, you kind of go in this vicious cycle. But to have pre-prepared meals, whether you're doing what you had suggested or somebody helps you freeze a whole bunch of them is really helpful when there's... Um, you know, something that, you know, a diet that you have to follow and some diet changes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there diet changes that you recommend for COPD? Yeah, that's one of the first things that we hit usually um, in the first few weeks of treating a patient because most people don't understand that a lot of the foods that we partake of actually change the way we breathe. We don't typically breathe. A normal, healthy person doesn't breathe because we need oxygen. Our brain triggers our diaphragm to move, which initiates the breath, and that is based upon the CO2 or the carbon dioxide levels that we have in our blood. So when we partake of foods like a lot of carbonated drinks, um, a lot of refined sugars have this um, cause where when they break down in digestion, it creates extra CO2 in our blood. So naturally, that's going to increase our respiratory rate because the number one way that we get rid of CO2 is through exhalation. So when you have a patient that has 
um, if we go back just a little bit to where I was talking about the airways collapsing and the air is stuck in those air sacs, that's called air trapping. So if we have a patient that suffers from air trapping, meaning there's that stale air in the air sac and they don't have as much room for the fresh air to come in and they don't have a uh, long enough exhalation time because you've increased the respiratory rate from 12 times a minute to 16 times a minute or whatever. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but it makes a big difference for these guys. Um, you're creating um, fatigue, um, oxygenation issues, and energy loss just because they had that extra diet Pepsi or whatever it might have been. Maybe it was a cupcake or a cookie. And I'm not saying we have to cut all of that stuff out, but we want to start replacing some of those things with some of those Diet Pepsis with a glass of water. Uh, We want to make sure that we're eliminating some of the negative and introducing more of the positive. So also, in conjunction with that, we... Not only do we want water to replace the diet soda, but we also need water because, remember, some of these patients have a lot of mucus or secretions that they're coughing up. Water is the best way to keep those things mobile so that when they cough, they will move and they don't get too sticky to stay in the airways. So those are a few of the things that we work on very very first and foremost when it comes to nutrition We, you know, so that then we can go further into... Uh, replacing rice with a quinoa so there's a little extra protein and, and a few little tricks like that so that we're feeding that body and those cells the, the nutrition that they need to function the best that they can. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with John Fielding, who's a licensed respiratory therapist and the author of the COPD solution, which lays out a 10-step program for living and breathing better. If you have any questions about today's show, you can call in or message us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. We'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And today we're talking with John Fielding, who is a licensed respiratory therapist, certified COPD educator, and certified asthma educator. She's the author of this COPD solution, which lays out a 10-step program for living and breathing better. So, John, when somebody's dealing with COPD, how do you prevent, you know, when you get them to go through your program and they start feeling better, but how do you prevent flare-ups? Flare-ups are uh, something that we really work hard to prevent. And some of the best ways to prevent those are, number one, if you have an asthma component to your COPD, it's important to understand what your triggers are. So if they happen to be biological allergens, you know, with, with the seasons changing or um, whatever it may be, that way, if they're just irritants, a certain cleaning product or strong perfumes um, and, and odors that way, you just want to be sure that you know what your uh, triggers are so that you can help prevent those symptoms from flaring up. Second of all, what we want to do is work on infection control. So during those times of the year uh, where the weather's real bad or there's a large amount of people with the flu, you want to kind of stay away from it. Um, avoid exposure, obviously, is one of the great ways to avoid infection. Hand washing. Be sure that you wash your hands uh, regularly so that you know, when something is um, put into your mouth or you touch your uh, medications or your oxygen tubing, anything like that that can carry that infection on it that is it has an opportunity to enter your body in any way, you want to make sure that it's clean. Um, and last of all, we want to make sure that we're staying on our medications because one of the best ways to avoid a flare-up or a, a flare-up is basically a loss of symptom control. You want to make sure that you're staying on your medications so that you... Um, are taking those correctly. If you notice that the medications aren't working as effectively as they have been, it's important to reach out to your physician and talk to them about that so that they can address that issue before it becomes a bigger issue. Most patients, when they have a flare-up, will end up at the emergency room. And sometimes if they're hospitalized, um, you're just um, opening yourself up to more exposure because obviously the hospital is full of sick people. So we want to stay out of there as much as we can. So do people with COPD tend to have more pneumonia and bronchitis and those sort of lung illnesses that affect us? It's possible. Uh, It kind of depends on the person um, and how hard they work um, to control things, but it is possible, yeah. Especially where if you have a patient that um, doesn't have the strength to cough things up, you know, um, they get some extra mucus production and you can't expel it. It's such a warm, moist environment that things can grow. So it kind of, it's patient to patient variant. It kind of depends on what the, the situation is with the patient, but it's totally possible for that to be the case. Yes. Okay. And what's pulmonary rehab? Pulmonary rehab is a program that is designed to help patients with pulmonary disease address all elements of the disease in an effective manner that helps them progress and become 
um, able to perform tasks that they need to do every day easier to improve quality of life. It will involve physical retraining or physical therapy, um, emotional, like work with a social worker, I call it emotional retraining as well, um, nutritional advice, respiratory advice, education, occupational therapy, um, whether the patient utilizes all of those facets of care or not is patient dependent upon the situation, but those all should be available within a good pulmonary rehab program so that the patient has access to those. It's designed kind of from a holistic standpoint where they want to address the patient as a whole, realizing that the emotions play a big part on the physical outcome of the patient and the physical outcome affects the emotional side. So it's not just addressing symptoms alone or one aspect of the patient alone. It's a very well-rounded program that addresses the patient as a whole. Does there tend to be a lot of anxiety and depression that comes along with having this illness? You know, there really does. Um, I think that can be true with any chronic disease. Um, With this one, it's kind of like you don't realize how valuable those breaths are that you've been taking your whole life until all of a sudden you can't take them anymore or you really struggle with it or you're breathing and you just don't have the energy because you're, you know, not getting the oxygen you need from the regular room air around you. So um, anxiety and depression really do play a large factor. And it's also interesting because they also affect the patient physically and they can come into this downward spiral that I talked about at the beginning of our segment where, um, or our conversation where uh, they suffer from shortness of breath so they get their anxiety increases, um, so they stop doing whatever they're doing, and then they're more sedentary, and then they suffer from shortness of breath because their tolerance is decreased, and it's just the cycle that the patient can get in. And so harnessing the, the ability to control that anxiety and address it um, is really important. Once you can do that and the quality of life can improve, then a lot of times you'll see the depression begin to lift the anxiety plays a huge factor in it. Um, yeah, I can see that, you know, it's something important to address and, and might may come along with the acceptance as well that things mm-hmm. are different than they used to be. And then, of course, something that continually you have to work on is the, the disease changes. Right. Um, so how does smoking affect this program? Smoking, if... Uh, we have a patient that comes in and they're still smoking. That is the very first thing that we address, uh, working on stopping that and finding replacement therapy for the urge that they have for that cigarette. Um, that's the very first thing that we want eliminated. They will see an improvement in symptoms, an improvement in symptoms and the way they feel uh, within days of not having those cigarettes anymore. So... And you can't regenerate the lung tissue once it's damaged, once those air sacs are damaged. It's not something that we can repair. You know, like the liver will oftentimes repair itself and replenish itself, but the lung tissue doesn't do that. Um, So we want to stop that damage as quickly as we can. Um, Once they stop smoking, they're not progressing the disease anymore, and then we have a better starting point for recovery. So do you find that it's difficult for people to quit smoking? It is, and oftentimes it's more difficult for others, for some than it is for others. Um, addiction is really the disease that you're dealing with there, and it's, it can be a very challenging thing to deal with. Um, but oftentimes also when they're faced with their own mortality, 
then they it, it it's enough to to give them the motivation they need to really really work on stopping and find success there. Oh, especially as you said it, just within a few days they may notice a difference, which yeah. might be enough to to stay um, to stay with it. So, what's the last step in your program? So, the program is kind of a revolving thing. Um, it's not something that I ever want anybody to stop using simply because it's continual improvement. Um, I don't imagine that anyone would go through it and and tackle every nutritional need the first time they do it or, you know, hit a certain point with the physical exercise or the yoga practice and then just stop progressing. So it's kind of one of those things where it's continually used. Now, in a rehab setting, when we're working this in a rehab, um, the last the last element that we hit is usually um, staying committed to it. We want to address positive outlook in, and a level of commitment to the program so that you're continually um, moving along and progressing. It's amazing how quickly, once you stop, how quickly your muscles will forget what you've been doing and you'll decondition really rapidly if you don't continue moving and, and doing things. And, and it's the same for your mental state. Once you, you allow those negative thoughts to creep back in and stay there, they really like to hang out and, and they welcome more to come along with them. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that you want to keep working on all the time. Can you give us an example of um, somebody that you've worked with and the changes that they've seen during your program? Oh, yes. And they are the best. That is the best payday I've ever had is when some of these patients come in and they are just like, you know, you have these big smiles on their face. I had one lady who came in, my very first patient that I worked this program on, uh, came in and she had been there for a few weeks and she was a very family-oriented person. Um, she loved to cook for her family and one of the most important things for her was to be able to go to church and sing. Um, she hadn't been able to sing in church for quite some time, and it really weighed on her heavily. Well, one of the things that we did in therapy to strengthen those, remember that belly breathing that I talked about? Uh, we would have harmonica groups, um, and we would just get together and play the harmonica, learn different songs, because that's a very strengthening exercise. And she had been part of this for quite some time, and we'd worked on other elements as well. And she came in one Monday morning, and she was just beaming she couldn't walk fast enough to get in and, and let us know that the previous day at church, she had been able to sing the entire time. And it meant the world to her. Her husband was next to her just in tears because he was so excited um, that she was so happy again. And he just said, thank you so much. You have given me my wife back. You know, I didn't, it's been so long since I've had her, I didn't realize how much of her was gone. So those are very powerful moments. Um, there's other ones where I, <laughs> this one patient that I had um, locally, we, I took my daughter out. We were driving around one Saturday morning looking for a, a specific house that we had to go to, and, and I passed him riding along the, on the side of the road on his own bike that he purchased um, after he was able to actually do it again, to ride a bike. Um, he put a basket on the front so he could put his oxygen tank in it, and he was just out for a bike ride. And that was awesome to see because when he first started, um, he had sold all of his horses, 
he wasn't breeding horses anymore. He uh, wasn't able to do any of the farm work that he had been doing. Um, and one of the big moments for him was when he came in and he says, I washed my tractor over the weekend. And he was so excited. And I knew that this was important to him. So I, I had my husband build a step that was the same height as the step on his tractor. We went out and measured it and, and built this, this box that he, so he could practice stepping up onto it and, and gain the muscle strength that he needed specifically for that exercise because he wanted so, so badly to be able to get back in his tractor again. So seeing something like that, you know, where he was able to have that vital piece of his life back for himself was just incredible. And, and there's so many stories like that that I could just take the rest of your week telling you things like that because it's just, it works. I mean, it's just, it works. I've used this program on over 700 patients and every time, every time it works. That's, that's amazing. You know, there, with no care for COPD, it's nice to know that there is um, something that you can do to make your life better, um, yeah. which is amazing. And what's really great is that so much of it falls into the control of the patient. All I'm doing is sharing some tools with them. And they have the ability to create this whole other level of life for themselves using those tools. So it's really, it's really incredible to watch the transformation that takes place. And I call it a transformation because it really is, you know, from the point where they start until the point where they are maintaining their self and just continually improving. It's, it's a complete transformation. So um, is there any way that people can reach you if they have any questions? Yes, on our website, um, the copdsolution.com, you can email us. It's info at the copdsolution.com. Okay, well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your program with us. I think even if people have uh, don't have COPD, I think a lot of it is really good advice for chronic illness. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, so uh, next week, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Emile Faith, who is a holistic expert and medical intuitive. We will be um, taking calls to do live intuitive readings. So be sure to call in and get some insight in your health journey. Um, thank you for joining us today. We were talking with John Fielding, who is the author of the COPD solution, and we uh, discussed her 10-step program. If you have any questions about today's show, feel free to email us at anantacalgary at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd always love to hear your comments and make today a great day. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.